Well, good morning, Christ City. Let me invite you to stand with me as we read our passages this morning, beginning in Luke 2, verses 40 and 52, where we read, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And now verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We go now to Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, it's Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And now finally, John 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As you're being seated, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that Jesus did not come only to die, but also to live a perfect life in full humanity. We thank you that in Jesus' life we have a picture, a vision of perfect humanity, how, how we ought to live, and that through both his example and his empowering by his Spirit, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen. Well, there is a default view of Jesus that I think many people around our city, maybe even you listening, might have. And it has three tenets to it, three sort of parts, if you will. That firstly, Jesus was a real historical person. Many people around our city would acknowledge the historicity of Jesus, that he existed in time and space. The, the, the second thing that we commonly believe about Jesus, our city commonly believes about Jesus, is that though he was a real historical person, he was only a person. Only a person. There was no divinity, no godness attached to him. And then thirdly and finally, our city is quick to acknowledge and, and, and quick to say this, if you've ever talked to someone about Jesus, that he was a real historical person, he was only a person, but he was a particularly good person, a good man, a wise teacher with wise sayings. The meaning of Jesus to our culture is simply, we should do good and act good like Jesus was good and did good. Jesus then, culturally for most of us, again, maybe you listening right now, simply exists as our moral example. Now, this popular view of Jesus doesn't only exist outside of religious institutions, but exists also within many religious walls as well. Some places of worship, uncomfortable with the supernatural components of Jesus' teaching, what he had to say about uh, sin, uh, other things that he did, uh, the cross, the resurrection, uncomfortable with those components, they've joined their voices to the current cultural voice and said, you know what, Jesus is really at base, at foundation, just our moral example. And they in turn have become silent on the other things that we've talked about in this series. How about us this morning? What is the meaning of Jesus's life? Is Jesus just a moral example or is he something more? See, here's the mistake that we make. If I can say this this way, in the conservative evangelical church, here's the mistake that we make. We are eager to remind people that Jesus was more than just a person more than just someone who was good or morally upright. 
We shy away then. The result is we shy away from talking about Jesus' humanity, his example, his perfect, perfect in every way, life. And so we sing songs in the conservative evangelical church like, lived to die, and that's it. As if the manger of Jesus' birth should have been placed near the cross to quicken our salvation. We don't make much, if anything, of the life of Jesus. The result is that we lose one of the greatest gifts of the incarnation. Here's our simple point. One big point we're going to see in three different ways this morning, and it's this. is that the one who created humanity, the eternal Son, puts on humanity, yes, to die, but also to show us how to be human. We can think of it this way. Imagine with me if Shakespeare were alive today. Somehow, magically, he's alive today, and he went to a modern rendition of Macbeth. What would it be like if Shakespeare himself could tell the actor playing Macbeth just how he always envisioned Macbeth to be played? How he always envisioned that role uh, to be lived out on stage in front of other people? It would be a great gift to the actor, indeed, to all of us. Shakespeare could show us how Macbeth was always meant to live. This silly example, on a much grander scale, is what is happening in the Incarnation. As one theologian puts it, Jesus is the true human being, the only one who has genuinely lived the kind of life that humans were intended to live under God. There is no doubt that the climax of Jesus' mission is his crucifixion and resurrection. But from his life, his day-to-day, maybe even boring at times, existence, you and I have much to learn. Looking at our passages throughout the Gospels, uh, there are three areas of his life I want us to spend our time in this morning. They'll come up on the screen. First, Jesus' growing life. The fact that Jesus grew up like a human. Second, Jesus' emotional life. Fully human, Jesus had emotions. We'll look at that. And then thirdly and finally, Jesus' obedient life. So first, when it comes to the time in between Jesus' birth and his ministry, the, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of, of details. There's not a whole lot of details between, you know, Jesus' birth and his, you know, ministry beginning around age 30, some scholars would suggest. And of the four Gospels, only Luke really hints at this in-between time. And, and we read the passage from Luke 2, but let's look at it again. Luke 2, 40 and 52 say this. And the child grew, speaking of Jesus, Luke records, and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Then we have some text, and Jesus, we read, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, it's important we look at Jesus' growing life because how we talk about Jesus growing up will inform much about what we believe about who Jesus is is, and how you and I are also to grow up, also to increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, the first thing we need to see about Jesus' growing life is that if he is indeed fully human, 
And we said this last week. Let me encourage you to watch last week's sermon if you're a bit confused on this point. If Jesus is indeed fully human, we should expect nothing less than he would grow. But the question might be asked, if Jesus grew up, he could grow, how then was he fully God? Uh, Again, scholar Stephen Wellham, he helps us navigate this question when he says these two statements, giving us sort of good boundaries thinking about this. He says this, From conception, the Son limited his divine life in such a way that he did not override the limitations of his human nature. But, and notice the second half of what he says, the Son was not limited to his human nature alone since he continued to act in and through his divine nature. Again, if you're confused, how exactly this works, like the actual mechanism of of the the two natures existing in one person, united in one person, how exactly that works is is mysterious. And 1 Timothy 3.16 reminds us of that. It's an alien idea to those of us who, by nature, only have one nature. But in Jesus, we can affirm that he, on one hand, as Luke tells us, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, and at the exact same time, on the other hand, commanded a storm to stop, spoke to creation, and creation obeyed. Hebrews tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the very word of his power. Jesus never stopped doing that. In Jesus, we have the God-man, forever two natures joined in one person. Now, this all sounds really theological, because it is. But it is also enormously comforting. It's also good news to us right now. How? Consider this. If Jesus grew up, then Jesus has good news to bring to those of us who also grow up who also grow. I want to take a moment that if you're a child, a, a preteen, a teenager, a young adult, and you're listening right now, can I just have a few moments just to speak to you? So, so children, preteens, teens, young adults, can I just speak to you for just w- w- one second? I, I have no doubt that you are in the strangest part of your life right now. At least for me, this time between 10 and 20 was, was really strange and really awkward. Everything is is changing. It's hard to know who your friends really are. You're wondering who you are, what you believe, what you want in this world, how you're going to get there. It's overwhelming at times. Can I tell you something? Can Can I give you some good news this morning? Preteen, teenager, young adult, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. The Bible tells us that he knows exactly, exactly the things that are tempting you right now, pulling at you right now, the forces that work to bring you away from the Father right now. Jesus knows all of those things. See, when I was a teenager, I imagined Jesus always as adult Jesus. He was always adult Jesus. And like other adults, as I saw I thought at the time, surely Jesus could not uh, know what I was going through, what I was experiencing. But imagine with me for a moment, pimply, teenage, a little bit awkward Jesus, and, and listening on what one ancient theologian 
wrote. And I'll explain it after, so don't get lost in the wordiness of this quote. But he said this. This is Irenaeus of Lyon. He said, He therefore, talking about Jesus, passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants. A, a child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of, of this age, being at the same time made for them an example of piety, of righteousness, and submission. A youth for youths, becoming an example to youths, and thus sanctifying them for the Lord. Here's what our friend Irenaeus means. Here's what he's getting at. Jesus shows us that walking with our Heavenly Father isn't just for adults. It's not just for grown-ups. It isn't a decision just to be made when you're older, have got more experience, but a decision that is for you today, from infants to youths. And more than that, keep on listening, when we look at passages like we've seen so far in Luke, we see that Jesus is the perfect human, and as the perfect human, he shows us the created intention of the early years of our life. That we might, in these early years, in these early days, grow in relationship with God and with others. Very briefly, this was Jesus' growing life. We turn now to consider Jesus' emotional life. His emotional life. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but Jesus, fully human, had an emotional life. Look now at Matthew with me. In Matthew 9, we read this earlier, but, but one of the areas of Jesus' emotional life that we're going to look at here and see is his love and compassion. In Matthew 9, 36, we read this. When he saw the crowds, listen, he had compassion for them, Matthew tells us because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' emotional life wasn't one-dimensional. Jesus experienced, we're told, the entire range of human emotion, yet without sin, meaning this. When Jesus wept, because he wept, think of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, weeping. When Jesus wept, he did it without despair, or, or blame-shifting. When Jesus wept, he was wholly trusting in the goodness of God, while simultaneously grieving, rightly, the unnaturalness of death. And when Jesus got angry, because he did, Jesus got angry. It wasn't a selfish anger, such as we feel when we're stuck in traffic. It wasn't an anger expressed in, in a passive-aggressive comment. No, Jesus rightly was angry at injustice and oppression and death. He was good and angry. And when Jesus laughed, because if he was fully human, he must have laughed. He never laughed at someone else's expense or at crude humor. But when Jesus laughed, it was from a pure, joyous, delighting heart. And when he loved, it was never self-serving. It was because he desperately desired that the unloved would know the eternal love that has always been shared within the Godhead. I followed Jesus for a, a long time before I learned that having emotions wasn't in itself a problem. 
But the problem was, was my sin nature and how it had infected them. See, one of the earliest examples of the early church steering off course theologically was in the realm of emotion, in the realm of emotion. See, the church early on was eager to find a way to communicate the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, to the Greek world. And so they looked around, and, and they quickly adopted both Platonism and Stoicism as avenues in which they could borrow language to communicate the gospel to this Greek-speaking, Greek-influenced, this Hellenized world. See, see, Platonism lended itself quite well uh, to Christianity because the Platonists believed in one good supreme being. They believed in that. And Stoicism believed in something called the virtue of apatheia, life without passion. And I want us to stay there for a bit. See, when you consider the context of the early church, uh, the acceptance of apatheia, life without passions, as a Christian virtue, it, it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense. Most of the religious groups at the time uh, were based on anything but self-control. You had uh, war cults and, and sex cults. And compared to those other religious experiences at the time, self-controlled, passionate, passionless rather, living seemed pretty good. Apathia seemed like a, a virtue. In fact, we have many early Christian uh, church leaders adopting apathia and promoting this life without passions amongst their followers. And yet, and yet, when we go to Scripture, when we look at God's Word, we find that Jesus, Jesus wept. We, we find that Jesus got angry and he loved, and that Jesus himself did not embrace, indeed live in apathia. No, he was full of emotion. So what Jesus offers to us now then is not the subduing or the killing or the, 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 the eradication of emotions, but rather the renewal of emotions. What, what Jesus offers is not Buddhist detachment, but Christ-like renewed engagement. I want to say one more thing on this point of Jesus and his emotional life because I, I can hear some voices right now. I know this because... It, one of those voices inside of me. Some of us, myself included, are saying right now, because we're suspicious of emotions, we might be tempted to say something like, well, I'd rather be unemotional than overly emotional. I'd rather be a stoic, an apathia stoic, than a blubbering mess. And on the surface, it has the veneer, that statement of godliness of self-control, of righteousness. And yet, I want you to hear the words of author Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He writes this. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. And so you find Jesus... He looks out at the crowd, and he is rightly seeing their helplessness move to compassion, move to love. His heart breaks for the crowd. If I'm being honest, I look at helpless people, needy people at times, on the sky train, as they walk down my alley, 
on the street, and I am seldom moved to compassion in the same way Jesus was. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. Jesus, may our emotional life look more and more like yours. May you, by your Spirit, cause us not only to think the way you think, but to feel the way you feel. Last point. We turn now to the obedient life of Jesus. We go to John 4, 31 to 34, and there we read this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Ultimately, the growing life of Jesus and the emotional life of Jesus all find their foundation or all pointing to the obedient life of Jesus. Obedience is a word, I know, that has fallen out of favor in our culture. A, a word we use in reference to dogs or our pets, uh, but used in reference to, to, to a person, to, to someone else, it's often meant negatively. They're, they're, they're blindfully obedient, we say. And yet, if we read the scriptures well, and we should, if we read them at all, we find that obedience is at the center of Jesus' life, at the very center of Jesus' life. Obedience this word that we hate, characterizes all that Jesus does. In the passage from John above, we find Jesus getting a greater sense of fulfillment from his obedient work, from being obedient to his Father, than eating itself, than food itself. In every way, Jesus was and is obedient. See, let's come full circle here. The problem with our city and the problem with you adopting Jesus as your moral example is that you can't even sniff, and I can't even sniff at his level of obedience. For one, as much as our world gives lip service to Jesus being a good guy, we certainly actually don't want to follow in his footsteps. We'd call Jesus' obedience uh, being regressive, uh, being, uh, you know, something that we don't like suppressing his true self. For another, even if you didn't want to fall, or even if you did rather want to follow in his footsteps, you'd soon find, as we all do, that we couldn't. That we couldn't. Jesus, as our moral example of obedience to the Father, makes no sense if he is only our moral example, if that's all he is. Jesus can only be our moral example in any meaningful way if he is first worshipped as God himself who died on the cross for our disobedience. And Jesus can only be our moral example in any meaningful way if he is first known as the one who was obedient in our place, living the life that you and I have all failed to live. We saw it last week. This beautiful passage in Romans 5, let's read it again. Paul there writes, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made, sorry, 
Many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. When we put our faith in Jesus' obedience, when we exercise what Paul calls the obedience of faith, we are made, we are declared righteous, made new, new creations, Paul will write later. We are now empowered by the Spirit to be obedient, to say no to the power of sin, of disobedience in our lives, to look to Jesus' life now and only now as an example that you and I ought to walk in. Let me be very, very frank. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're listening this morning, first off, welcome. But before you look to Jesus' life and ask, what should I do? How can I do what he did? Let me encourage you, before you ask that question, to look to his cross, look to his empty tomb, and then ask, what does it mean? What does it mean? Christ City Church, Christians, followers of Jesus listening right now, let me encourage you, look to Jesus this week, the truest human being. Note his growth. Note how he redeems what we have called wasted years. Wasted years. And look at Jesus' cry. Notice how he gets angry. Notice how he has compassion. And ask the question, as I've had asked myself this past week, if you've allowed Jesus' spirit to change your emotional life. To not only think what Jesus thinks, but to feel what he feels. That's part of being conformed to his image. And above all else, look to Jesus' obedience. Hebrews calls Jesus' obedience a joyful obedience. I'm convinced that while many of us are looking for new experiences in Jesus, what most of us, indeed all of us, are called to right now is to obey the simple paths that Jesus has laid before us. You know what to do. The scripture is clear on how we should live. What remains is that you would walk in those paths of obedience. I want to just ask you very simply this morning, are you walking in obedience? Are you walking in obedience? See, if you are not walking in obedience, what we learned this morning is that we're actually walking when we do that. We're, we're living in a subhuman way less than what Jesus has designed us for. A walk in a way that will not lead to life now and forever, but to death. Death first experienced in this life as we walk in disobedience, and death ultimately forever. Christian, turn back to the Father. Walk in obedience by the Spirit. Walk in the path that Jesus has made possible for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your life. We thank you that we can look to your life and the way you lived. And there's so much more we didn't even touch on this morning, how you lived by the Spirit, full of the Spirit. And in you find a picture, indeed the truest human. Jesus, we long to walk not in a subhuman way, but in a truly, fully human way. 
We ask that by your spirit, you would empower us to do that. And where we are walking in disobedience, would you help us now by your spirit confess our sin to you and begin by your spirit in the context of the church with brothers and sisters, begin now to walk in obedience in whatever area you are revealing to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.